You are now listening to Candler in Conversation, the platform for conversations on faith, theology, and public life, hosted by the Candler Foundry. On this special episode of Candler in Conversation, we will feature the Candler Black Excellence Podcast, hosted by Candler alum, Elliot Robinson. Welcome to the Candler Black Excellence Podcast. I'm Elliot Robinson, the project director and host for this special edition podcast series via the Candler Foundry. Candler Black Excellence is a multi-year project that will highlight the achievements and impact of Candler's black faculty, alumni, and students. In this episode, I sit down with Reverend Drs. Kevin Muriel and Damon Williams. Reverend Dr. Muriel is the senior pastor of Cascade United Methodist Church in Southwest Atlanta. He's also the assistant professor in the practice of practical theology and director of the Black Methodist Seminarians program at Emory's Candler School of Theology. Reverend Dr. Williams is the senior pastor of Providence Baptist Church in Southwest Atlanta. He's the co-director of the Baptist Studies program at Emory's Candler School of Theology and senior lecturer in the Industrial Systems Engineering Department at Georgia Tech. These two pastors provided practical yet often unspoken insights into the nuts and bolts of pastoring. They share their pastoral journey, as well as the lessons learned as they transition from being an associate minister to the role of senior pastor. We also discuss the realities of bivocational ministry, the nuts and bolts of the occupation of pastoring, namely compensation, benefits, a preaching plan and how to approach preaching, maximizing staff and volunteers, and developing your professional team. We looked at the challenges of pastoring during a global pandemic and possible silver linings. This episode will help everyone in the church from the pulpit to the back pew. Enjoy. Kevin, can you share a little bit about your journey into the pastorate? You know, I was raised in the church and, and I'm glad you categorized it as a journey because that's exactly what it has been and continues to be. I was raised United Methodist from Brandon, Mississippi, originally, attended Jackson State University, and there through Fellowship of Christian Athletes is where I really began to see my calling unfold. I accepted my call to the ministry when I was 19, actually when I was 18, and preached my first sermon when I was 19, July 24th, 2005, at Trinity United Methodist Church in Brandon, Mississippi. It was a communal experience, and as a product of the community, I truly believe in the village. And uh, as my father so eloquently stated at my first sermon, that y'all raised him, that it took the village to raise our son. And, and so I'm a product of the community. I'm a product of the church. And I love the church. And let me be more specific. I love the black church. And I am so thankful for how the black church has poured into me and continues to do so. And so as I matriculated through Jackson State, I knew that I was called to ministry. I just didn't know what that looked like. And so my pastor, Zachary Beasley, who was a Candler grad, uh, had a conversation with me about next steps. He said, where are you going to go to seminary? And honestly, seminary was not on the radar at that time. I had a business degree. I was thinking about corporate America. My father 
uh, has been a CEO for over 30 years. And so that was kind of my trajectory. And so I ended up going to uh, visit Candler while I was at a business competition in Atlanta and fell in love with the campus. And I said, you know, I think this is what I could possibly do. So I ended up applying to Candler, got a scholarship. Candler was the only seminary I applied to. And I fell in love with it, got accepted, ended up coming to Atlanta. That was in 2008. And from there, the journey just continued. Uh, While I was at Candler, uh, I was able to serve on staff at First Methodist Church in Tupelo during a summer internship. That's when I knew that my passion for the church, pastoring a church, had evolved. My third year, I was able to serve through Candler's Office of Contextual Education as a pastor of a small church here in Georgia, uh, Antioch United Methodist Church, as a student pastor. And so I led that congregation. It was in a transition community. And at that time, I'll tell you, I knew absolutely nothing about being a senior pastor. I mean, you know, if if there was a mistake to be made, I made it. <laughs> and I thank God for those gracious and loving people who allowed me as a you know, budding seminarian and as someone who just had a passion for the church to come and to learn and uh, to develop. And from there, after I graduated from Candler, I received an appointment as an associate pastor at Cascade United Methodist Church, where I currently serve as the senior pastor. And after three years of just amazing ministry at Cascade with some wonderful people serving youth, launching new worship experiences, Uh, I left there, went to Cliftondale United Methodist Church, and there God gave us some growth and uh, allowed some things to to occur by the Spirit. And two years later, I ended up back at Cascade as a senior pastor. And four years later, going into year five, I'm deeply grateful for the journey because that's exactly what it's been. Uh, It's been a journey. And Damon, can you share a little bit about, about your journey and how you got to this point in your ministry? Absolutely. I first want to say that Kevin makes me feel unsaved. And I just feel like (laughs) I feel like I need to go over to Cascade and get baptized because my journey, my journey is not going to sound as holy. I'm trying to add some more Christianity to my journey. Uh, So I'm born and born and raised in Maryland. Uh, We went to church, but I can honestly tell you I was not that serious about church. Came down here to Atlanta for undergrad and at, at Georgia Tech. And I can honestly say I went to church zero times the entire four. No, I went twice. Excuse me. Don't have me lying. I went twice. I went to church two times while I was an undergrad. The young lady's name was Leah Salgado. I went two times chasing a young lady. It never happened. Never went down. As Um, is often the case. Yes. So two times I went to church in my four years there. Then I, uh, my time in undergrad uh, taught me that I do not have the disposition to work in corporate America. So I interned twice and was like, this is not for me. I need to be an academic. So that's when I decided I wanted to go get a PhD in engineering. And I wanted to enter the professoriate. I wanted to be an academic. I wanted to be a teacher, a professor. So Georgia Tech is number one in the nation in the, the work that I do in industrial systems engineering. And I wanted to come back and be a professor at Georgia Tech, but they don't do what's called inbreeding. So if you get your PhD at Tech, they will not hire you at Tech. They want to bring in diverse thought and ideas from other institutions and other universities. Uh, so me being an arrogant undergrad, I said, well, we're number one. Who's number two? And they said, University of Michigan. I said, well, fine, I'll just go there. So I went to University of Michigan. I applied, got in, uh, got a fellowship, went to University of Michigan and got my degree. Again, not really thinking about church. And as God would have it, on a recruitment weekend, when I got recruited to come to University of Michigan as a PhD student, I met a young lady. Her name was Jennifer Pender. And she had graduated from Tuskegee University. 
And she told me she knew of an alpha. I had pledged alpha while I was an undergrad. She knew of an alpha from Tuskegee who was coming to University of Michigan to get his PhD in electrical engineering. And Ann Arbor is a very expensive place to live. And so as a graduate student, my salary was $14,200 a year. And they took taxes out of that. So I needed a roommate. So my friend, James Griggs is his name. James and I became roommates. Uh, we started living together. And James is from Dothan, Alabama. Uh, the most faithful brother you have ever met in your life. He started going to church in the womb and hasn't stopped since. Uh, so you got Holy James in the house with Hillian Damon. Um, and uh, there was this great church, amazing church, just, just off the campus from University of Michigan, Second Baptist Church of Ann Arbor. And James answered his call to the ministry, and I went to his initial sermon and felt something in my spirit, didn't know what I was feeling. So I then started attending church, loved the pastor there. He was a teacher, not a preacher. At that time in my life, I liked teaching. And so eventually I joined the church and I got baptized. And I'll never forget as long as I live. It was Halloween. It was October 31st, uh, 2004. Uh, so I, I, I joined the church on Halloween. So all my friends make fun of me that that's the day that the water boiled and you know <laughs> the hellion came to church. So within a, within six months of joining the church, and I've just gotten baptized. I'm 24 years old. I've just gotten baptized. Haven't read the Bible. I know nothing about church. I know nothing. I am having visions of myself in a pulpit pastoring. I am, uh, People are prophesying into my life that you're going to enter the ministry. Uh, and I'm like, oh, have I joined a cult? Like, these folks are crazy. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like, I just, I just joined the church. So I go and have a meet. I set up a meeting with the pastor, and I go and have a meeting with him to tell him what I'm experiencing, and just so he can tell me, you know, I'm crazy, chill, slow down, turbo. Uh, he says to me, uh, literally, yeah, we know. Yeah, I've already talked to the deacons about you. The anointing on your life is clear. We're just waiting for you to to get with it. Uh, and so, you know, I kind of avoided him for another year. Like this brother's crazy, but I kept going to church, kept growing. Eventually, I. I answered my call to the ministry, and uh, being in the Baptist tradition, when you answer your call to the ministry, you initially preach an initial sermon. So me, having been having only been in the faith for a little over a year, a year and a half, preached an initial sermon in 2006 and became a licensed minister of the gospel. It shows you how crazy we Baptists are. We just let anybody in. <laughs> so here I am. Now I'm in. Now it's 2006. I'm in the middle of my PhD. But you know how Kevin probably knows this. When you answer your call to the ministry, you just you become a holy roller. Whatever you have me to do, I do. Whatever you have me to go, I go. I'm ready to drop my PhD and run straight to seminary. Uh, and my pastor's like, listen, slow down, Turbo. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You just got baptized. Slow down. Relax. Finish your PhD, stay here, and learn what it is to do ministry. Uh, so I ended up staying for another three years while I finished off another master's and a PhD while I was at Michigan, and I, I was serving under him for another three years. So 2009, I finished my PhD thinking about my career, and my pastor says to me, it's time for you to go to seminary. Now, mind you, at this point in time, I've already earned four degrees. I can't believe I have to go to seminary. Uh, and so I told him and God, if you'll let me go back to Atlanta, I'll serve you all the days of my life. Uh, and so I went to a big school, Georgia Tech for undergrad. I went to a huge school, University of Michigan for graduate school. So I wanted a small, more intimate environment. And my pastor actually, though he was Baptist, went to Louisville Presbyterian. He said, those Presbyterians really know how to train you academically. So I started Googling and I found Columbia Theological Seminary uh, in Decatur, Georgia. I came down here, got a scholarship, went to a seminary. And because I'm arrogant, at the same time that I was in seminary, I took a position at Georgia Tech in my old department because I thought that I could work full time and go to seminary at the same time because obviously it's just seminary. I have four degrees. Of course I can do it. Who knew how difficult life would be mm -hmm. uh, in seminary? <laughs> go through seminary uh, and in the final year of my uh, semester, so January uh, of the last semester that I'm in seminary, my third year. 
I'm teaching Saturday school at Zion Hill Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. Reverend Dr. Aaron L. Parker is the pastor. That's the pe- church that I joined and was an associate minister at the entire time that I was in seminary. He comes to me and he says, hey, do you think you're ready to pastor? And I said, well, you're my pastor. Do you think I'm ready to pastor? And he said, well, this is church that's coming available. Uh, and I know the pastor who's retiring and I want you to apply. And I said, oh, what church is it? He says, Providence Missionary Baptist Church. So by that time, Providence, well-known church. Everyone knows Dr. Durley. Now, you gotta, if you if you follow my trajectory, at this point in time in my life, I am not ordained. I am not married. I have no pastoring experience. And I've never even worked in a church, right? I've been a volunteer associate minister. I've never even worked in a church. So I'm like, oh, Doc, you're crazy. There's no way in the world I'll get that job. But I'm a good Baptist. And a good Baptist does exactly what their pastor tells them to do. Uh, so I applied for the job, and lo and behold, after a nine-month process, they called me. They called me as their pastor. And so that was in 2012. I got called as their pastor in late September 2012. They called me. October 2012, I got ordained. November 2012, I took over the pulpit. And in January 2013, I got installed. And so that is the journey for how I ended up pastoring a church here in Southwest Atlanta. That is an incredible journey. And I think what's great is that each of you have very distinct paths to ministry and to the pastorate. And it it's able to really provide folks with really the two ways in which most people will generally come. You know, you're going to be sort of groomed, born into realizing, oh yeah, you know what? This is this is where I belong. And the other is, wait a minute, this is not me. You know, <laughs> clearly you've clearly you've you've come to the wrong address, you know. Right, right. You know, and pulling along, but then also those pathways that that you both took, how each, again, once you get into it, the steps that you take to get to the point where you become a pastor of a church. Kev, did you want to add to that a little something? No, no, I just I just love Damon's journey. I mean, he was just lifted by the spirit and, and just, you know, placed into where he is. And I think that's something that, you know, we all need to pay attention to, that the spirit of God works. And the same spirit that lifted him into his journey is the same spirit that lifts anybody who's listening to this. And you have a path that may be unconventional that, you know, you may not have it on the radar, but the spirit will literally lift you into where you're supposed and put you into where you place you into where you're supposed to be. I truly believe that, you know, it's not some and I always I like to say that through my journey, I didn't see angels coming out the back of the church. And, you know, the, I, I didn't hear an audible voice. I mean, I think we're waiting for this uber spiritual, super spiritual moment. Right. But the spirit is lifting us and placing us even when we don't even realize it. Right. Even we, when we don't even know what the spirit of God is doing. And, and I'm you know, I'm so encouraged by Damon's story um, because I think it can truly resonate with that person, especially who may not ever have had ministry on the radar. And quite honestly, you know, I don't know. Most people and most pastors that I've spoken with about their call to ministry, it's not something that they necessarily wanted to do. Right, right. As much as it was this desire to do what they felt like they were called to do. Mm. And, And I just... I don't know. I, I, I wrestle. I wrestle even with that because I mean, even when you look at the Old Testament, nobody wanted to be a prophet. I mean, prophet. You know, it's not like we consider prophets today. You know, some kind of, you know, ideal badge of honor. Nobody right. wanted to be a prophet. Right. Prophets got killed. You know, <laughs> prophets had to suffer. 
And David, you probably would, you know, we, we probably would agree on this, that, you know, pastors, you know, have this, uh, this, this life of suffering that we also have to endure. And uh, it takes a toll on you in, in unimaginable ways. So I'll, you know, that, that was just my thought. But, but I think the spirit is at work in both of our stories. But, you know, I'm so encouraged by Damon's story. Uh, because it, it truly shows how the spirit is able to work in just unimaginable ways. You have encouraged me, my brother. Uh, amen. Well, give God the credit. That's why I'm coming over to Cascade to get baptized. I, the, spirit, <laughs> the spirit lifted me. Now I'm coming over to you so I can be dipped one or two more times. Or spring. Look, our audience probably should understand how close we are. <laughs> right. Yeah. Y'all just have to understand. Damon and Kevin. We go all the way back to what was the name of that barbershop we used to get our hair cut at on Butner Road? Remember? Phase three. Was it phase yes. three? Yeah, face. It's face. Yeah, I don't remember the name of it. I we used to get our haircut, like and the barber used to tell me like, "Hey, that guy's a preacher too." And I was like, I, "I've seen that guy, but I don't know where." Right? It's my because James place. was the guy who who would cut. Yeah, I remember. Mm-hmm. Him. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's how long we we known each other since we got our our haircut at the same barbershop. and it, that's just, that's saying a lot in Atlanta because there's some barbershops like churches. There's one on every corner, pretty much everywhere, and people people barbershops. <laughs> Uh, hop. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So then, so then let's let's talk a little bit about what's it like to to make the transition. Each of you at one point was an associate or assistant to a senior pastor. And so what was that like for you moving from the second chair or an associate chair to to now being the pastor, senior pastor? When you're the associate minister, you're just doing the work. And what it takes to get the work done, the relationship building, all of the different background things that occur in your denomination or in your church to make things happen, you're not aware of because the pastor's taking care of all that. You're just doing the work. So, you know, at uh, at Zion Hill, when I was there, I you know I led the Bible school, uh, uh, vacation Bible school. I taught a Saturday school class. You know, I worked with the college students and where the money came from, how they got the budget, you know, who had to be talked to or spoken to. to, I wasn't aware of any of that. What relationships had to be developed so that I could just do my, you just do your thing. Mm -hmm. And it's really easy and it's fun. And you're just doing ministry because somebody is behind you holding up the bloodstained banner so that you can run forward and, and then make it happen. All of a sudden you become the pastor and you try to come through the door just running and doing ministry and the church is like, uh, sir, we've been around for a while. We have a way That's that we right. do things here. Uh, you need to take this sister out to dinner first and you need to take this brother to lunch and you need to, you know, get with this committee. You need to get with this group and you have to learn that those relationships and, and I was not aware of that at all. And so Kevin and I could sit here and just trade stories of how many mistakes I made in my first three years and, and now that I'm eight years in probably continue to make said mistakes. Oh, my goodness. man! you have articulated that perfectly. I just, you know, and when you're in the when you're in the what I call the second chair, when you're in the associates role, everybody loves you. Well, most most folks will love you. And, you know, you have room to make mistakes and not have to pay for those in the way that uh, a senior leader would. would And and by mistakes, I mean, you can learn and you can experiment and you can you know, do all of those things that ministry, you're cultivating your gifts in the second chair. Um, and, you know, I always said that if I ever had the opportunity to have associate ministers, and I do, we have, um, we have four, uh, if I ever I had the opportunity to have associate ministers, then, you know, I would want to give them the same space to, you know, work out their calling and to create and to, and to innovate so that, 
and to do it in a way that that brings value to the ministry. Because that's another thing. Uh, associates bring a lot of value, great value yes. to yes. the ministry. And I would encourage any senior leader to find you, seek out some, some you know, gifted associate pastors who can help bring, who can help and, and who also can compensate for areas where you're deficient. Mm-hmm. That's another thing. Um, you know, that's what I look for when, when I, you know, in, in associates, how can you bring something very unique, your own gifting to this ministry to help progress the overall mission? And also, I need you to be strong in an area that I may not be as strong. And that also takes a level of humility to say that I'm not strong in yes. every area. And that's OK. Right. You know, that's been a learning process because everybody wants senior senior pastor to know everything, to have every answer to every problem and every, and just that's just not, you know, not the case. Hey, Kevin, break down for them. So I'm, I'm Baptist and you're United Methodist. So this idea of being an associate is different between our two denominations. So break down for them. what, what it, When you say associate in the United Methodist context, tell them what you mean. Yeah, so our associate pastors are appointed. Um, so they go through seminary training, you know, go through the Board of Ordained Ministry process, and they are appointed full-time in ministry to the local church. Our associate pastors are over our various divisions. So we have a pastor over our young people's division, pastor over outreach, a pastor of our nurture division, uh, which includes Christian education and also uh, includes all of our care ministries. And then we have a pastor over outreach. So all the outreach initiatives that we do, we have a pastor that takes care of those. And so where I sit as a senior pastor, you know, I kind of oversee all of that. But, you know, we work uh, in tandem. But, you know, as an associate pastor in the United Methodist Church, I mean, some stay a while. Some don't stay as long. So we often have turnover of about three to four years, which is, is interesting in culture, right? It's interesting in a church culture. And so I'm not, I'm not as certain, but so Damon, help me know. Do you all, you all have to hire? Right. So you have to hire. So in the Baptist context, most associate ministers are volunteers. Uh, you've been licensed and you serve at the pleasure of the pastor. So when I was at Zion Hill, I was one of 30 some odd associate ministers. There were 30 licensed preachers to the gospel who were on staff at Zion Hill, but we were volunteers. We did not get paid. And we just, you stepped up to wherever you felt like your sort of area in the vineyard was to serve. And that's Mm -hmm. what you kind of took over. But you're even further removed. That's what I meant by the protection of the pastor. You're not on staff. You're not being paid. So you're even further removed. So I would, when you said kind of the second chair, like I was nowhere near the second chair. <laughs> right. I was probably, the pastor was way up there. I was probably like the 30, the 30th chair, oh, uh, you know, cause I, 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 taught a Sunday school class, you know, I led, I directed VBS, you know, but there were other associate ministers who I would say were, had more pivotal roles and larger roles in the church, because I know it's a very large church, you know, than I did while I was there. Yeah. When Kevin says, find you some people that are that are skilled and gifted and qualified, whether you're getting volunteers in the Baptist tradition or whether you're getting a staff persons in the United Methodist tradition, it is it is so true. Get some get some qualified help. Remember what Jethro told Moses, get you some qualified help. Qualified help. That is so real. Elliot, to your point about the transition then, what I will also say is, and, and Damon mentioned this, but it's responsibility. You know, it's responsibility, accountability. When you're the senior pastor, I mean, you just worry about things that associate pastors and assistant pastors don't have to worry about, you know, you, you have, you set the atmosphere, you set the trajectory in the life of the church. And at the end of the day, and I tell my staff this all the time, when it all hits the fan, the bishop, the church, everybody, they're going to look at me. They're going to look at the senior pastor. They're going to look at you. 
So you have to make sure that you have it, you know, so that you can keep it together. Even, you know, when in the background, you know, people may not know all of the the moving parts that you have to uh, work to coordinate. And it's a lot of moving parts, no matter what side of the church. It is. Think of all the drama you've heard about in churches. Whose name goes down? It's always the pastor. And now that I'm a pastor, when I hear a dramatic story of something happening in a church, I then say, well, I got to get the details because I don't know if that was the pastor's fault. Because people don't understand how our churches are structured. Some money goes missing. It's the pastor's name who gets uh, going to drag through the mud. Well, Kevin, I don't know how Cascade is set up, but at Providence, I have no access to the money whatsoever. I don't touch right? it. Right? Don't, I don't have any access. We, by the structure, the corporate structure of our organization, I, as the pastor, do not have access to the accounts. I can't write a check. I can't. I have no access to it. So some money goes missing. Mm-hmm. They're going to drag my name in the streets. But when we get in the court of law, I'm covered. <laughs> right? Because uh, there's no way Damon could have touched the money. My name's not on any account or, or, or the whole nine. Right. And so I think that that's, that's important. Like, you carry all of the weight of the church. If somebody walks in the church, you walk in Cascade, and an usher is mean to you. When that guest leaves, I mean, I'm not going back to Kevin's church. They're not going to say, I'm not going back to the church where sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so was disrespectful to me. They're going to say, I'm not going back to Dr. Muriel's church because Dr. Muriel, has he's running a, a shabby program over there. So as the, you take all, you take a brunt of all the hits. That's real. Mm. Absolutely. You know, and I will, I'll also add to that. You take the hits, but when things go well, you have to know also how to give out credit because you can't assume all the credit either. You have to know, and I always say you never go wrong making other people feel big. You you never go wrong because people are going to assume that you want all the credit for everything. And, you know, what I've just learned over the years and as a senior pastor, you have to do this. You have to give it back. Say no, you know, first to God be the glory. And, you know, we would not have made it here without the team. It's all about the team. Yeah. And, you know, people know if you're a servant leader or not. I mean, they can sniff it out, uh, you know, 100 yards away. Uh, but but I think that's it. And you also have to it's talking about making the transition. I think it's it's also a life of learning that you have to be teachable. This is probably Elliot, probably more than what you asked for. But no, this is great. I just, th- because I just it's, think it's throughout, yeah. you know, throughout learning, you know, how to sit in the first chair. It's, and then, you know, it's always a learning experience. You, you never come into it ready. Michelle Obama said something about the presidency that it reveals who you are. Right. It reveals who you are. And when you sit in the in the chair of the senior pastor, it does reveal who you are. It makes you, oh God, (laughs) it reveals it. It reveals, you know, how much, how much patience do you have? And I think patience even is a, is a weak word. Are you able to to suffer long? What's long suffering? You know, what does that mean? Uh, You know, what, what does it mean to, to have to lead through a pandemic, lead through crisis and you have to still ascend and preach and encourage other people and be there for your family and be there for your children you know, and still balance the budget and still be a mentor. So these are just things that associate pastors oftentimes don't have to deal with. And so there is a significant difference. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. The day the day you move from associate to pastor, two things you need to do. You need to have a mentor pastor, yeah. somebody that you can lean on, and you need a therapist. Amen. Immediately. You better have somebody that you can talk to because all your stuff is about to show on Front Street. Uh, absolutely. Uh, because there are members of your church who wake up in the morning. How can I get Kevin's stuff to show? Right. What can I do to pull Damon's stuff out? And they're going to press every button you have. And if you have, if you're not emotionally healthy and emotionally strong, mm-hmm. you know, you're going, you're going to, it's going to show. And that's why you, you read the, Kevin, you know, I, you know, we read the stuff about pastoral burnout. You know, our colleagues burn out. A high percentage of our colleagues burn out within the first five years just because 
you know, the job is that stressful at times. So then let me ask you this, because I know you talk about the different dynamics between Baptist, UMC, and then also with AME and other denominations where we're looking at bivocation, trivocation, and how that also then impacts your ability to do ministry. So I know, Damon, you said when you were at your previous church, everyone was volunteer, which meant that they had another profession and then they would volunteer their time to serve at the church. And I know in the previous conversation, we talked about the idea of tent making. You know, when you're in ministry, you're, 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 you're constantly finding ways to, to figure out how do I make this tent of ministry work for me? What does that look like? Or, or what advice would you, would you give to pastors who are in this modern day context, bivocational, trivocational, some quadvocational, just so that they have the ability to serve in ministry? Gotcha. So, so I think that there's several different contexts here. We got, and we have to separate them uh, in distinction. Dr. Kevin Muriel and Damon Williams are both blessed to serve at churches who, by themselves, can pay us a salary, can pay us benefits, can pay us bonuses, and can fully compensate our lives that we can take care of our families. And uh, Kevin is not bivocational because he needs to be. I do not work at Georgia Tech because I have to. Our churches can fully take care of us, and we are blessed, you know, in that way. Uh, by and large, your average call, your average church, unfortunately, these days is not able to do that. So some people, most of our colleagues are bivocational out of necessity. Uh, and I think that that's very important to state uh, and to argue. Kevin and I are bivocational out of gifting. Opportunities have opened up for us to stretch these gifts even further. And our, our church, and I'm saying quotes, expands farther than just the campus on which we preach at on Sunday morning. So for all my brothers and sisters to feel led to call, to have that ability to tent make, to have that ability to make money and be able to care for your family other ways, that way you're not that much of a drain on the church financially. For me, my brain is wired engineering. I am an engineer. I'm a scientist. Math and science is how my brain works, which means I love five plus five equals 10. Kevin knows when you and I go into the church, 5 plus 5 does not equal 10. 5 plus 5 equals 11 on Monday. It equals the square root of 17 on Tuesday. It equals plus uh, 3 squared on Wednesday. It equals negative 4 on Thursday. It never equals that. That is extremely stressful to me in the way that I operate. So for me, being a senior lecturer at Georgia Tech, teaching at Georgia Tech is a vacation. I ride up Northside Drive and the world is as my brain intends it to be. It is nothing for me. I've been teaching there for 10 years now, since 2010. It is nothing for me to go in there and teach those classes and talk with those students and, and get on that whiteboard and flow. And we, there's no what's at stake. There's no theology. There's no question. There's no what if this, how about that? There's no situation. There's no personality. It's just cold black and white engineering. And that, oh, that's such a vacation for me because I know when I get in my car and I drive back down Northside Drive, Tank gonna be that way, my brother. It is not gonna be that way when I get down into Southwest Atlanta. And so I needs to go up there. It needs to go up there and have five plus five uh, equal ten. But it's also been a blessing. Uh, I have baptized five of my mm -hmm. students. Uh, I have had mm -hmm. over fifteen of my students uh, wow. join uh, my church. I have married uh four of my students and so you know it is it has been a blessing to you know have ministry i've had countless theological discussions biblical you know christians find each other on a campus like georgia tech and they find out i'm a preacher and then they you know they gravitate and they to me and they come and talk to me i had an entire white fraternity after dylan roof went into that church in south carolina wow. and killed uh, our brothers and sisters uh, an entire white fraternity of georgia tech came to me white males and said to me we want to come 
to your church that then following Sunday uh, and have a show of solidarity. Now, of course, as a black church, I had to tell my security, listen, there's some white boys coming. They're, they're friends of mine. Uh-huh. <laughs> don't Absolutely. don't arrest them in the parking lot. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then in the pulpit, I had to tell my church as they were coming in, hey, those are my students at Georgia Tech. Because, you know, everybody was looking at them. Everybody was, you know, but they wanted to come right. and they wanted to show. And that, that has been extremely helpful to have those white males come and sit in a black Baptist worship experience and say, hey, we're here in solidarity. That we're Christian and we acknowledge we disagree vehemently with what that brother yeah. did in South Carolina. And so we're here to stand and show support with you. It brought tears to the eyes of people in my church, and it was just a blessing uh, to be able to have. Wow. So that's, 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 for me, that's where the bivocational comes from. How about you, Kevin? Man, that's powerful. Uh, Damon, it's powerful. You know, I look at it theologically as well. You know, Jesus had people around him of different vocations, you know, from fishermen to tax collectors, you know, business people. Mm-hmm. You know, I think this is, I think it's it's a calling. I think it's also a wiring um, and, you know, for me, I just can't sit in one place for more than, you know, 10 minutes. I, I'm always looking, you know, for what's the next possibility to expand the reach, not only of the of the gospel of the kingdom, but the impact of service to other people. And so for me, it has to be, you know, and I, and I definitely echo what Damon said about serving a church that can support you. And I give God thanks for that. That supports me. That supports other clergy that supports other churches in the con- in our North Georgia conference, you know, that supports families in the city. I give thanks to God for a church that generous. But there's also this kind of expectation that our pastor is not just supposed to pastor us. Mm. And that has been so freeing because I stepped into this role. And again, it has nothing to do with me. This was, you know, the outlook of the congregation prior to me. I mean, Joseph Lowry was the pastor here the Dean of the Civil Rights Movement, you know, he was he was here mostly on Sundays. But during the week, he's around the country you know, fighting for social justice, fighting for civil rights, fighting for voting rights, fighting for access. And so there is Walter Kimbrough, others who came before me. There was, there was this expectation that you are supposed to be the pastor of Cascade, but you're also it's also supposed to be much more than that. So for me, bivo, being bivocational, trivocational, uh, also has to feed into my passion, right? You know, I'm a pastor and I'm a preacher at my core. That is who I am. I can't get away from it. It is who I know God has called me to be, created me to be. But I also know that I have, I'm definitely not as smart as Damon. I don't think I could go to Georgia Tech and teach in that classroom don't and be that. as comfortable do and put five plus five together. I just can't do that. I don't, look, I I, I can't just apply to, uni- you know, to University of Michigan and 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 get accepted, then come back and teach at Georgia Tech. You know, he he is just wired differently. That's why I lean on him so much. However, I think we both bring this love for the academy, and that is an extension of our ministry. And just like the young people that he just mentioned that have been touched by his teaching, but I would dare say that's also an extension of his ministry. That is something you know that it, it's a passion. But it complements. And I think if you're going to be bivocational, trivocational, it needs to complement your passion. That's what I really want to say. It needs to complement your passion from the foundation that my wife and I have to being an author, you know, writing books, all these things. I think there are so many different avenues, but it all leads back to what is your passion? And when you know why you were created, when you know why you were born, when you know what your purpose is, then it doesn't seem like work to be trivocational, bivocational, et cetera. It just seems like, hey, this is this is what you got to do. Now, the truth is, is, it's hard. It can be tiring. 
you know, I don't want to romanticize it, that there's a lot that goes into it, but it's just like anything. you got to grind. And I, and I hope that whoever listens to this realizes that ministry, whether you're serving in a local church, no matter what size it is, whether you're doing multiple things, whether you are, if you are a tent maker, you also have to have a spirit of hard yeah. work. I mean, it's just, it is what it is. You know, you got to be, you got to work hard. Um, and yeah, so that I'll, I'll leave it there. You got to work gotta hard. Work hard. Amen. So then let me ask you this. We, we kind of have already moved into this next piece about different career paths, different pools and, and working with passion. And I know you mentioned that you write books, you're both professors. And so how would you suggest that individuals who are, let's say, new newer in ministry or maybe who are or just coming out of seminary or, or who are in seminary now thinking about, okay, how do I set myself up so that I can do these other things so that I can feed my passion while also in ministry? What advice would you give to them? Because, you know, in, when you're in seminary, you're thinking about serving in a church, but then you also have like, well, I would sure love to teach. Well, maybe I want to work with a nonprofit. And so you have all of these things moving around in your head, but you're not really sure what's going to happen once you walk across the stage and you get your first appointment. So so what advice would you give to them on how to sort of sift through that piece? Oh, easy. These young people today love like I'm 40 years old saying these young people today. That's ain't no that's the definition of getting old right there. Young people today, they swear to promise that they're the first person to think about something. Right. That everything they think about is brand new. If you are listening to me, pumpkin, Mm -hmm. let me tell you, there is nothing new under the sun. Okay. Go and find somebody who has done or is doing exactly what you even have an inkling you want to do. And then they've already charted the path. You just have to follow it. You heard me say that I came out of Zion Hill Baptist Church. Zion Hill Baptist Church, pastored by the Reverend Dr. Aaron L. Parker, who, in addition to pastoring a mega church of over 5,000 members, also mm-hmm. is a full-time professor of religion at the school in the School of Religion at Morehouse College. So he's a full-time professor and a full-time pastor. I didn't make this thing up. I talked to Doc. Doc actually told me, this is a hilarious story. Doc told me, do not, when I was applying at uh, Providence, he said, do not leave Georgia Tech. He said, you stay there. Mm. He said, stay at Georgia Tech and let them know they're hiring a full-time professor at the time. Uh, I actually did not listen to him. This is hilarious. So in 2012, I actually resigned my position at Georgia Tech. You know, I'm holy. Oh, I got a pastor. Oh, my time has to go to the church. You know what I'm saying? And I did that for two years. Then my wife started talking to me about wanting to have a baby. I was like, bet. So then I called the church's insurance. Like, how much it costs to have a baby? When that lady finished talking, I called Georgia Tech. How much it costs to have a baby? On Georgia Tech's insurance, <laughs> they were like $500, everything else covered at 100%. I got off the phone with them, called the chair of my department. I'm back. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Why? Because Dr. Parker understood some things. Georgia, at Providence, right. we're Baptists. We're not United Methodists. We're a disconnected church. Our little health insurance plan had three people on it, right? At Georgia Tech, the health insurance plan is part of the University System of Georgia that's got 60000 people on it fundamentally different ideas these are little things that i didn't think about in 2012 but the person who had Mm -hmm. walked before me understood right he understood those things and so he didn't tell me all the details he just told me not to leave georgia tech when i talked to him later and told him the story he was like i told you not to leave georgia tech (laughs) what's my point so the answer to your question the short answer to your question find somebody who's doing exactly what you want to do talk to them 
Uh, and then just follow the path. Find a mentor, somebody who's doing it, and then just follow that path. You're not doing anything new. Pumpkin, I know you think you are. Oh, bless your heart, sweetie. I know. You think you are the first person to think of this. You are brand new. It's an idea that no one has thought of. I'm sure you think you're the first. You're not. Come talk to Kevin or me. Tell us what your idea is, and we will give you a list of 10 people around the nation who are doing what you want to do and more. And then we'll connect you with those people. Cause well, Kevin, cause his network is much bigger than mine. So Kevin, Man, please <laughs> the, the, look what he's get what he's really getting at is, is relationships build relationships. Yes. If I could give you, we, you know, we, while we were at black student caucus, when I was a student at Candler, we wanted to, we did this session about what they don't tell you, you know, they can give you, you know, how to exegete scripture. They can give you systematic, give you new Testament. old, but, Relationship building is one of the things that will get you not only through seminary, not only open doors of opportunity, but it's going to guide you your entire life and ministry. Damon is so right. You will not get to where you are by yourself or where you're going by yourself. There's people who are already doing it, already done it. They got the T-shirt. They got they you know, they got the cap to go with it. And they got all of the testimonies that go with everything they had to endure to get to where they are. Ask them, sit down with them. And nine times out of 10, you know, I, I've only met a handful of people who are not willing to have conversations with students. And it's probably because they were busy or, you know, self-absorbed, whatever the case may be. And frankly, you don't want to deal with too many folks who are self-absorbed anyway. But for the majority of people, they are more than willing to have conversations with you. Build relationships. When I think about the journey so far, every stage and I'm so glad we're having this conversation. Every stage, the door was open because of a relationship. It, it's not only about what you know. You do need to know some things now. I want to be clear about that. Um, but you also need to know some who's. You need to know some people who see something in you that you can't see in yourself. I'm a product of that very thing. When I wanted to say, you know what, this really ain't for me. Let me, let me pick up the phone, go back into corporate America, go somewhere else, go do something else. I could always pick up and say, before I make this decision, let me call my mentor and let me talk it through. And, you know, relationship, relationship building is. And they're sitting right there in our churches. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening to this, you have no idea how much experience and wisdom is sitting in the elders that are sitting in the pews at Cascade United Methodist, sitting in the pews at Providence Missionary Baptist Church. And they're just all your churches that you attend. And it's just an older person who's waiting for you to sit down and ask them their story. And then you'll find out, oh, this person did this. This person did that. You think you want to start a podcast. Well, this person in their day, they didn't have a podcast because there was no such thing as podcasting. But the idea that they got with a group of people and had conversations that ministered, they did that in in sermon talkbacks over fried chicken at their house. And here's how they structured and set it up. All the experience you need is right there in the pews. You just got to develop some relationships, just like Dr. Muriel said. Let's let's shift a little bit and let's talk about Mm -hmm. some things that new pastors need to know when they're walking in the door. So for example, contract and benefits packet, and then also dealing with the power dynamics that will really take place when you're dealing with the contract and the benefits package. So if we can start there and then we'll kind of move through some of the areas that, that they really need to think about as they endeavor upon this, this next phase of their journey. Well, I need to listen. You know, I'm Baptist. We don't have all this worked out. So I, Kevin, tell us in the United Methodist yeah. world, because I'm already excited about this pension y'all got over there. Tell us what it, how does it go down in the UMC? I, 
You know what I mean? Give God glory every day. <laughs> every day. Uh, and, you know, but that's a great conversation to have about denominational choice and options uh, because the systems are so different. Within our denomination, we already have a structured pension system that once you're appointed, you opt into and uh, it remains with you even in retirement. And we actually pay into the pension system for retired clergy. So we help. We, you know, the, the denominational system continues to um, assist along the journey. There are classes, there are seminars that help clergy who are newly entering into the United Methodist system deal with all that stuff. That's great. But the local church pays your paycheck. The local church has to pay into the pension system as well to your insurance and all that. So I, d- I would say to any pastor going into whatever church or whatever dom- denominational system, have those conversations up front and do your research, know where you're walking, know where you're going and just be very honest. Because, you know, nine times out of 10, most of the people who are making those decisions, and as I've experienced it, have had to have those conversations before. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to talk about compensation because the practical yes. side of ministry is that you got to live. Mm. And, you know, let's just be real. If you're asking me to give my life to this work, I don't need to be worried about if I'm going to be able to eat or live or sleep or, you know, have peace of mind when I go home because I'm giving you so much of myself and my family. And, you know, we don't talk about all that, uh, how it strains your family and all the relationships. And so I just think being very clear uh, up front about that. And the other thing is, you know, if we're talking about if are you just talking about compensation, Elliot, or you want to talk about another? Well, let's talk about the, the way. So, for example, you said like your local church pays your salary. Is there, a, is there a predetermined structure in the UMC of, okay, if you're senior pastor, your salary should start in this bandwidth. If you're an associate, it should be this bandwidth. I know in some denominations yes. they have, this is your minimum of what you will be able to get, and this is the band for that particular salary structure. Because we, we talk yeah. about it, but most mm-hmm. of us don't know what happens in each other's denominations in a more sort of detailed way. Great question. So in the United Methodist Church, we have a minimum compensation package for full-time local pastors, for provisional deacons, provisional elders, and for full connection uh, elders and deacons. So there's a minimum that we have to pay. Above that, based on membership, based on budget, the church can then set the salary of their pastor. You know, they can set whatever that salary is, but there is a minimum that we do have to compensate our clergy. And then what are some other benefits? So you mentioned the pension. So then, of course, like life, mm-hmm. health insurance, things like that. Right. Okay. Right. All of those things are included. We have to pay into the pension program. We have to pay into health benefits for all of our pastors. And so as far as parsonage or housing stipends, that's also considered a part of your package as well? Correct. We have to either do one or the other. So several churches do have parsonages. You know, we've kind of seen a trend going away from that. We do a housing allowance. And so... Uh, we're able to to work that into the compensation package, but we have to do one or the other. And how about you, Ooh. Damon? I know your situation Ooh. is very different because it's, it's very local. Mm. Mm. I'm about to, I'm about to have a moment over here. I just hear about what's going on in the United Methodist. Right. Baptist churches are autonomous. Uh, those of you who are listening, you know that every Baptist church is different. It is independent and unique to the Baptist church. So what you're going to get 
could range from chicken dinners and a stipend all the way up to what Kevin described. And it just depends on the local church uh, that you're applying to because they're all autonomous. There's no central structure. And when you apply to a Baptist church, the other thing that you have to think about is many Baptist churches have longtime pastors. So the last time they thought about even doing this was... 25 years ago, and the world has changed so much (laughs) since the last time uh, they thought about it. The only thing I can tell you is if you're applying to a Baptist church, you have to talk to somebody in the city that you're applying to. So let's say you got a a call to a Baptist church in Atlanta. Come find me. I would probably know about their church. I would probably be able to guess about their budget, and I would be able to tell you exactly what you you should ask. If you're applying to a Baptist church in Dallas, you should talk to a pastor in that city. But by and large, yes, it is just, it is unique and specific to the church. So you want to kind of write down, hey, you want to walk into every church and say, you know, treat us like any job. So yes, I would like salary. I would like benefits. I would like medical, eye and dental. I would like life insurance. I would like, you know, retirement. I'd like you to put something into my retirement as the employer. I put something into the retirement as the employee. I would like a bonus structure that is merit-based in addition to cost of living increases uh, as the years go on. And I would like some money for continuing education or pastor's discretion budget. All of that, if you can get all that, it's a blessing. A lot of churches can't do all of that, so you just start working down from what the church can do. But you're coming into it, and you really don't know what the church can do, and you don't know what's appropriate to ask, which is why you need a mentor, someone to kind of shepherd you through the process. You're the player. You need an agent. Right. And so I, as a local pastor in Atlanta, would sit down with you and I would say, here's the appropriate way to have this discussion with the pulpit search committee or the chairman of the trustee board or the chairman of the deacon board, you know, whoever you're talking to. What I have found in my experience is that Baptist churches are not fair. They do one of two things. They are either overly generous, paying you way more than they can actually afford, or they're overly cheap. Right. But fair Baptist churches you know, and the most Baptist churches fall on the far right hand side. They are overly generous. They are. You look at the budget. You look at what they're paying. You're like, y'all are just y'all are going bankrupt paying this person, right? So they they're way too far over here. They're overly generous, and it's really hard for you to do ministry if you're taking all the money, right? Right. So that's, that's right. Baltimore Ravens. Bring in Joe Flacco. Remember that we brought him in as a quarterback. We gave him that 130 million dollar contract. We didn't have any money to do anything else. We haven't won a Super Bowl since, right? That's why we had to get rid of Flacco's behind. Same idea. If you as the pastor are making right. all the money. You're a 30, 35% hit to the budget. Mm-hmm. You know, then I have to pay bills. I got to pay for buildings and grounds. Between you and buildings and grounds and just keeping the building up, we have no money to go out here and do ministry and, and do evangelism. That's right. So that's why you're going to need a pastor to sit down with and help you do something that's fair. And that's the statement. When you talk to a church, the answer is just treat me fair. Just treat me fair. And let someone tell you what fair is for the market that you're in, for the church that you're applying to, because we're not connected. When you're in a connected church, you don't have to worry about that because it's more structured and they've thought through all those questions. For a disconnected church, you're going to have to talk to a mentor. And please, to anybody listening to this, if you are to go into ministry, get you a great financial planner, get you an outstanding tax accountant, get you some people that can help you handle and plan for your financial future, with you, your family, please do that. I cannot stress that enough. Please, um, because yeah, yeah, I, Damon, you. That's all. I'm, that's all I got to say about that. Get you somebody. Call us. We'll tell you the stories. Who, <laughs> we will tell, we'll tell you the stories of our colleagues. <laughs> Get you seventy. Well, well, since since we're breaching that a little bit, what what are some of the pitfalls for not having that professional team around you? 
as someone who is in ministry because there are certain breaks and there are certain ways in which you're treated for tax purposes if you're in ministry full time as opposed to other individuals and so things that they may not be thinking about. So what are some of the pitfalls? Oh man, I'm gonna tell you, I made this pitfall coming out the gate. I get hired, they're paying me a great salary. Do you want us to you know, pay you as a minister and have your housing allowance? Sure, I gave them the amount of money that I want for my housing allowance, right? So your housing allowance protects you from paying federal taxes and state taxes. It does not protect you from paying self-employment tax. Self-employment tax. Yep. No one told me that. That's right. So I, for the entire first year I was on the job, was not saving money, saving my self-employment tax, nor was I putting the money aside. Neither was the church. At the end of the year, I have a great tax attorney, uh, tax accountant who I got halfway through the year. He had assumed that I knew the answer to these questions. So at the end of the year, Kalia and I go to do our taxes. I looked at the bill. I'm not going to cuss, but that's what I wanted to do. What the? <laughs> Absolutely. Right? Because I didn't know. I did not talk to the, I got the uh, tax accountant halfway after I had signed all on the dotted line and got everything set up because I had no idea what self-employment tax was. I didn't know it wasn't being taken out you know, in the whole nine. So that becomes crucially important. The other thing I will say is this happens in the Baptist tradition. You serve the church with gladness. You give the church everything you have 30, 40 years. Well, when you retire, the church has a new pastor they have to pay. They don't have enough money to take care of you too. And so now if you haven't properly planned for your retirement, the church loves you. So of course they're going to want to take care of you, but they also got to take care of their current pastor. So now the church is carrying two ministers but only getting work out of one and so that's the that that's the key is you need to work out your pension structure whatever that pension structure is going to be you need to work that out on the front end as opposed to spending up all your money and thinking oh the church will take care of me until i die because when you're young you don't think about this right but as you get older health insurance costs are high right cost of living is high and everybody thinks they're going to make money into perpetuity and you're not and so from day one, the minute you get ready to think about going to seminary, Absolutely. listen to me, not graduating seminary. By the time you graduate seminary, it's too late. But from the day one, the time you start going to seminary, learning about planning for retirement through your 20s and your 30s and your 40s and your 50s and your 60s, where do I need to be investing? So that way you have the plan and structure in place. You become like the Patriots. You have the system. Now you just plug in the players. Doesn't matter what job I get. I already know my system. I know what I need to do in terms of employer-sponsored retirement accounts, what I need to do in terms of Roth IRA or traditional IRA if I go that route. And then you're just plugging in the money as you make it, building a plan so that when you retire, you can say to the church, I've given you all I could for the time that I served as your pastor. Now move forward with the next man or woman of God and go, and I'm good to go. I'm going to go over here to Florida and sip, you know, Kool-Aid in the shade. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's good. I love that. And just like I said, putting that team together and, and that team may evolve over time. You know, you may oh, start yeah. off with one tax attorney or, or an accountant to just provide advice. And now you're moving on with your retirement planning piece. And then you're looking at other ways to, to sort of link up to prepare for the end. So you like you said, kind of work your way backwards. So you say, OK, this is I, this is where I know I want to be when I'm 65, 70, whatever age you look at and then figure out going backwards. OK, now how do I get there from where I am right now? And like you said, the earlier you start, compound interest works in your favor. And so if Absolutely. you start early enough, then it won't seem as monumental task as you get older. And ask somebody. What Kevin and I keep talking yeah. about relationships. Just ask, ask Kevin who he works for. His tax. He'll tell you. 
<laughs> Ask him who his financial advisor is. He'll tell you my financial advisor's name Mike Bisbee. He works for Raymond James. I send you his information. My tax attorney's my name is works for McMullen CPAs up in Gwinnett County. Just 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 ask. We'll tell you. And then I'll be like, tell Mike Towns and Damon sent you. He's I think one of the greatest CPAs Atlanta has to offer. Tell him Damon Williams sent you. You know, and and he's been working with me for years, and and we have no problem sharing that information. But you know, don't assume that you know. Ask. So now what about as, as a new pastor looking at personnel, so your staff or your lack of staff? Oh, um, we know that there are two different, and I often lament um, the ways in which we look at paid staff in the black church, which tends to be a volunteer model, whereas in other denominational structures, and, in, and then even just in other, other churches, and it's generally, I don't want to say it's ethnicity-centered, but there is a more of a paid staff model in the non-black church. And then in the black church, it's, there's a tends to be an over-reliance on the volunteer model. And so how do you manage that in terms of ministry and then being a new pastor? And, and how do you make that work? I ain't touching that. My staff might listen to this podcast. Absolutely not. <laughs> I love my staff. I love my staff. The best ever. Come on, Kevin. Talk about it. <laughs> I love my staff. Hey, look, I wish they were. I wish they could see us. So we're, we're this is an audio podcast, but we're doing this on video. We can see each other. And as soon as Elliot started talking about staff, we both just <laughs> smiled and shook our heads. Because if you, you know, whenever you manage people, people are people. And, you know, you can just think about who you are and how difficult you are sometimes. And, you know, the nuances of your own personal life and personality. And so you bring that into a space where you're trying to galvanize team and culture and you're trying to lead people who are who they are. And what I will say to you is that the staff makes it happen. The team makes it happen, um, whether it's paid or volunteer, they make it happen. And you have to galvanize people around you uh, who can make the vision that God has given you a reality for the community, for the kingdom, et cetera. And then you also have to have, a, I could talk all day about this, but a staff that that gets yeah. it. They, they're working with you and in lockstep with you. They're moving to, to the beat that you're setting. And they're not working against you, you know, uh, good to great. Jim Collins talked about, you know, getting the right people on the right seat in the right seats on the bus. And I think that is the truth about staffing. What I, you know, my philosophy you know, on staffing is, number one, I realize that if I can take the strength, the financial strain off of my staff to have to worry about their day to day you know, just conditions of living and, you know, am I stressed about whether I'm going to be able to pay my bills and take care of my kids? And if I can take that away, then you realize, or at least minimize it to an extent, you can get so much yeah. more out of your staff. Um, you have to pay them an equitable, livable wage that is commensurate with their, you know, abilities and their gifts. And you, you can't skimp on that area. So, you know, sometimes even before you advocate for yourself, you have to advocate for the people who are around you so that you can take that burden off. Um, I always say that if I want someone to do a big task, um, sometimes volunteers aren't just going to get that done. You've got to have people in paid positions that that is their job. That is their focus. It's in their description. I can hold you Preach. accountable. Now you preaching. Now you preach. Come <laughs> you on. Know. I'm sitting up now. Now you preach. <laughs> 
don't you start that. <laughs> Look, it's hard to hold volunteers accountable. Now, what we say to our volunteers is that you're working for the you're working for the church, you're working for the Lord, and we expect the same type of commitment. But the truth is they got jobs too. They got families yep. too. You yep. know, they've got responsibilities as well. And so if my volunteers don't show up, I really can't get mad you can't do that because i don't pay right. you right i can't do that right. i can't reprimand you i can't you know do anything right um professional development plan i can't do any of that because i don't pay you but when when i pay you know when i pay you there's a level of expectation and i can set that and i have to hold you accountable for that because this is you know you're getting paid to do the work I, we could talk all day about about staff, but I think staff are essential. And if you can get you some good people around you that you can pay a good salary, who can make it happen, and then who can help galvanize volunteers to not give them the same responsibility as staff has, but to give them enough to where they feel like they are contributing to the overall mission and vision of the church. I mean, I think you've got a winning combination there. One of the greatest pieces of advice that I was given was when you get hired to a church, don't bring your own staff right away. Um, come in and work with what they've got. Figure out, particularly when you're new, figure out the lay of the land. Some of the older folks who work in churches may not be as technologically proficient. They may not be as with you, if you particularly if you're a younger person, but the institutional knowledge that they carry is invaluable. It is absolutely invaluable. The pastor who was before me was at Providence for 25 years. He was a 70-year-old man when he retired, Reverend Dr. Gerald Turley. And he had two senior citizens as the administrative assistant and the receptionist. So and I walked to work every day as a 32-year-old man. Here's these two employees supporting me who are twice my age. I really not, they wanted to talk to me. They didn't really want to read an email. <laughs> Certainly didn't want to get a text message from me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They wanted to have face-to-face conversations. You know what I'm saying? Uh, uh, no, no teams right. messages and nothing. Yeah. Reverend, uh, Reverend, no. I'll be in teams, at nine. Uh, I want you. Right, right, right. And at first, that used to, you know, it used to agitate me. Oh my God, I need some people who are younger who can run with me, yeah. who can do this, who can really, you know, get into Microsoft Excel and do this, you know, because I like data. I track every. I'm an engineer. I track every piece of data known to man. But what I realized, particularly my first year, two years on the job, was, you know, I made a commitment. You all can stay until you had planned to retire. I'm not going to push you out. That's the first thing I committed to them. Uh, and then the second thing I learned was, man, there's so much about this church and about these people that they know. People would set a meeting with me. Uh, Sister Francine Owens was her name. God bless her. She is one of the most amazing human beings on the planet. Sister Francine would welcome the person with warmth, would bring the person into my office. I'd be standing out the door, would bring the person into my office. And then Sister Francine would walk by me. Okay, you're about to meet with Kevin Muriel. He did, 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 and would give me all the background information I need. I'm new on the job. I don't know these folks yet, right? Yeah, right. Hey, uh, this sister just lost her son two years ago. This sister just lost her job, right? Was giving all this institutional knowledge that if I had gotten me a little teeny bopper who was my age, who could do Microsoft Teams, right. could get it all done, but wouldn't know that. And in church, you're in the people business. And right. so I was blessed to be able to work with those ladies until they became retirement age, until uh, they retired. And then when they retired, I got a new executive assistant. 
Reverend O.J. Flowers. He was great, but between he and I, we did not have the institutional knowledge. And I found myself still calling Sister Francine. And to this day, bless her heart, Sister Francine, if something goes on in that church, Sister Francine still calls me and gives me an update. I will find out information from her before I'll find out from anybody else because she's just that in touch with the beat uh, of the church. So I would say, you know, you're young, you immediately want to come in and bring in uh, this staff person or that staff person. Slow down, Turbo. Work with who they've got. It may not be the most efficient in terms of proficiency, but it will be efficient in terms of institutional knowledge. And just realize there's just so much stuff. When you walk into a church, you don't know. And having that person who's there is, is extremely helpful. So that's what, that's what I would say about staff. Uh, that and get somebody... Two things you got to take care of at the church. You got to take care of people's cars. You got to take care of their children. So while they're in there worshiping, if you're letting their cars be broken into, you're not going to have a church very long. When they come to church, you know, you got you to gotta be able to preach Jesus to their children. And so get you some good security people out there protecting the cars. Now, if you're on the north side of town, you ain't got to worry about people breaking in the cars. Hey, God bless you. Kevin and I are over here in the SWATs. You know what I mean? Brother. <laughs> them cars are not safe. Get you some good security people. Team. And when I say good security yeah. people, some security people want to come and sleep on the inside of the narthex while you're in there mm-hmm. worshiping. I need somebody who's walking around, having a presence. Right. And then people who are going to be good with the youth. So that when people bring their children to the church, their children are safe. That's right. And they're being ministered the gospel in some way, shape, form, or fashion. And that is such you know, a blessing. So that's the one staff person I would say, come through the door and make sure you have somebody good in place. And if not, now that's the one person I would change immediately. Get somebody who's really good with children, K through five, tweens, middle school, and your youth and your high schools and young adults. So, I mean, that's, that's four different sections of people. And so now another piece, because you talk about ministering the gospel, when you're a new pastor and the task of preaching at your church, what advice would you give to a new pastor? Uh, the tendency is to feel as if you need to submit yourself as, as the preacher. And so you feel you need to preach 52 Sundays out the year. And so talk to, talk to us about that task because it's, it's one that can be lacking because you now have all these responsibilities. And maybe when you were an associate, you got three weeks notice that you'd be preaching or more that you'd be preaching mm-hmm. on a particular Sunday and you maybe only preach mm-hmm. three times out the year. Whereas right. now you, you now have the weight of Sunday coming. Right. Yeah. Preach. If you're a new pastor, preach. Well, you need to mm-hmm. preach, preach and you need to do it. You need to spend your first year. Um, what I would, I would advise spend your first year preaching some of your best sermons that you, I mean, do that and take the time to prepare to preach. Because before you administrate, before you change anything, before you go throughout throwing everything, <laughs> throwing everything out to everybody, focus on the proclamation of the word because they have to learn your voice. They have to learn you and they need to hear your heart. What better opportunity than every Sunday for at least however long you preach, 30 minutes to an hour, whatever it is, because and you're not giving no homily. No, no, preach. <laughs> preach a full. We ain't Catholic. Waiting. Well. Mm-mm. Don't, don't homilize them. No, 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 no. You preach and, and do it in a way that is in tune to where the congregation is currently. They need to know that you're their pastor and that you care. Now, now the nuance is, Elliot, there's some pastors who may not have the gift of preaching, mm. which is which is interesting. And, you know, there will be some in our denomination that would argue that 
I can preach, but that's not really my dominant spiritual gift, that my spiritual gift is administration. So, you know, I lean more to managing my staff, managing the church. And what I will do is I will hire a stronger preacher. Uh, we see this kind of phenomenon with preaching pastors, teaching pastors, or you have this team dynamic to where there's like a preaching team and you don't have one pastor preaching all the time, yeah, yeah. you know. So Damon's gift is preaching. Damon is a preacher's preacher. The brother, if y'all, whenever you drive down Cascade Road, and y'all need to do this, I'm serious. Whenever we go back to church, y'all drive down Cascade Road, look at the marquee in front of Providence Missionary Baptist Church. You will you will see his sermon title, and it, it grabs you. And I'm like, all right, I, I definitely got to tune in this week because, uh, and the truth is people want to hear their pastor preach. Um, and there can be sometimes an insecurity, especially if you, if you have associate pastors, where you start feeling, okay, well, maybe I need to give somebody else an opportunity. And that's great. You do. But p- your your people need to hear from their pastor and they want to hear from their pastor. They want to hear, you know, I would never forget to your point earlier about after the killing in Carolina with uh, Dylan Roof. I mean, and, you know, after George Floyd, after Trayvon Martin, after these major incidents, the people wanted to come. And hear from their pastor. They want to know what you got to say about it because you're their spiritual leader. I would never forget. I was slated to preach at another church. This is a podcast. My members didn't know this. I was slated to preach at another church. I had taken, I had already put in, I was going to take that Sunday off. And I promised this pastor I would do their men's day like a year ago. And I wanted to be true to it. And so it was the last Sunday before COVID. Mm. It was the last Sunday before COVID hit and we were seeing that things were closing down and I knew I was, that I wasn't going to be in the pulpit that Sunday. And I called him, we had a conversation and I was like, doc, you need to preach to your folks. And I definitely need to be here to preach to mine. And, you know, it made all the difference in preparing us for how we would close down, et cetera. So there are a lot of different nuances. I do think you need to offer opportunities for other people to preach and they need your people need to hear other voices beyond yours. But I think at the core, you know, your people want to hear what you have to say because you are their spiritual leader. So preach. Got to preach. Yeah. There, 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 preach. There, I can't add anything to that. You absolutely have to preach. The one thing I will add to it, however, is to say, and this is in support of exactly what Kevin just said, you know, Kevin and I love to work out. We both love to, to, to get in shape. And both of us know you can't work out every day. Uh, because your muscles actually grow on the days that you take off. Uh, That's right. And so you must, you can't preach 52 Sundays out of the year because you'll empty your pitcher. And oh. then if your pitcher is empty, you have nothing to fill anybody else's cup with. So you That's do right. need to plan some breaks in there to make sure that other people have an opportunity to hone their gift, but that you need to be kind of taking a break and, and listening you know, to other people. I, I'll never forget it. And Kevin, you have to tell me the title of the sermon. I think it was summer 2018. When our black pastoral colleagues went and met with President Trump, you remember? Yeah, I remember Kevin that, yeah. preached a sermon. I don't remember the title of the sermon, but basically, if I had to title it, I would call it a response to meeting with, you know, kind of, kind of response to meeting with Donald Trump. It's probably, I think, and I've listened to a lot. I listen to a lot of Kevin's messages. I listen to a lot of my colleagues' messages on the Cascade Quarter because I love all y'all. I love the way they preach. But I listen to a lot of Kevin's preaching. Uh, I think it was probably one of the best sermons he's preached since he took over at Cascade wow. because it was so relevant. 
and he was literally, maybe the sermon was titled, Do Your Homework, because that's what's jumping out at me. He was literally telling people to do their homework and remember who President Trump was. Now, this was, he was not being political. He wasn't telling you to be Republican or Democrat or who to vote for. He was preaching facts. (laughs) He was preaching facts, but he was preaching facts so well and so strongly in the style, in the homiletical style of an African-American preacher that you couldn't help but hear the gospel, but also, you know, get, you know, the facts. To get that much facts, you got to do a significant amount of research. To do a significant amount of research, you got to have, you know, time to prepare. And so if you're going to preach, you have to schedule time. A pastor told me, and I wish I had done this, if you are in seminary right now, or if you are not pastoring and you would like to become a pastor, you should be outlining hundreds of sermons. Wow. Wow. He said, outline a sermon. My pastor who licensed me used to make us write a sermon every week while we were in getting laid our ministry training. Why we got to write a sermon every week? One day you're going to preach every week. So you need to get used That's to right, practice right. of writing a sermon, you right, know, every right. week. Uh, and outlining hundreds of sermons. And the thing about outlining hundreds of sermons is you have the context. And then when a Dante Wright gets shot, you you already, right? right? You, you've, got a, you've got a word, so now you just need to apply it, right? Because you, you've got, you know, you know, you've got... Uh, the outline when uh, Derek Chauvin's trial is going on, right? Because you, your your preaching has to be relevant. If it's not relevant, then why why get up there and say anything in the first place? You're just right. talking, and and so that's what I would say. You, you know, you got to preach and and, and you got to give yourself time to prepare, significant time to prepare. Yeah. So what does that preparation look like for each of you in terms <laughs> of do you are you several weeks ahead? Are you doing the sermon that's going to be well, I guess now we can say displayed or or shown on Sunday. Are you working on it that week? So so what's what's that process look like for you as a full-time pastor? Oh, you want us to give away secrets now, Elliot. You trying to help the yeah, children. Help, going, help the Ella, children. Going, help the children. Ella, you're going too deep ooh, now. Ooh, ooh. Let me let me say that during COVID it's Yes, changed. yes, thank you. Caveat. COVID yeah, has yeah, changed yeah. things. Yes. We go so we're gonna talk about COVID forward and we're not gonna because you know we're in a we're in a different normal now. Yes. COVID, we pre-record our services now. So, and I, I'm, you know, that's no secret. I'll just tell people that there's some Sundays we do go live, like on first Sundays we're live. But because of COVID, we found that pre-recording our services by Thursday, which means that I have to have my sermon done by latest Wednesday night, Thursday morning, which sped up my timeline significantly. Oh, yes. <laughs> Unless I wasn't preaching a revival or doing something else. Sped it up significantly. So now you have to reorient your entire preparation process to what is happening in the current context in which we find ourselves. And COVID has changed everything. It's changed how we meet. It's changed how we communicate. And so and now I have to even change how, you know, you have to even think about think differently about how you even present the sermon because you're doing it for us. You're doing it in front of a camera with a red light and not a thousand people sitting in your sanctuary. So. It's just different. And so what I will say is that whatever works for you, however you got to get it done, get it done. I don't have a kind of prescribed solution. I think everybody works differently. For me, I found that I have to plan my week around my sermon preparation. I I just because now whenever you preach in COVID, whether or not you want it to be, you are now a public theologian. You're if, if you weren't online before, you are now. You are <laughs> you <on> now, <laughs> right? Right. Well, hello, and, and and chances are somebody's watching you, and so you your content has to be stronger. Uh, you have to go deeper. 
your audience has expanded. You got to be more broad with your message. You have to, but you can't, but see, in all that, you can't lose the substance and you can't lose the gospel. And so I think it has been a gift to me because it's made me, number one, more efficient. I'm studying on a deeper level and it has expanded our reach and our audience. And it, it is what it is. I, I don't know what, how it's going to be when we go back, but I like the space that I'm preparing in now, although it is, it's a little shorter. Timeline's a little yeah, shorter. Much, much shorter. So I'll, I'll tell you pre-COVID, then I'll tell you COVID. So pre-COVID, you, obviously you're preaching every week. So at the beginning of a month, the Minister of Music and I are, are, are sitting down and we're talking about, you know, what season are we in? We're in the season of Advent. We're in the season of, what, what's, what, what Christian liturgical uh, season are we in? And thematically, here's where I'm going to go this month, right? So then now you can plan music and arts and dance and everything else, and it's going to somehow be connected with my sermon. So going into a month, what I would have is, so like, like right now it's April. So what I would be, if, if it was pre-COVID, what I'd be working on now for April is I would look at a calendar and I would say, up oh, there are five Sundays in May, right? Here are my five texts, right, that I'm going to preach from based upon either what I'm studying, where the church is or whatever, and I've got my text. So now I'm going to get into the text now. So now we get to the, the month. So all I've got is my text. I don't have titles yet because to me, the title is like the hook. If you listen, Murphy Lee, what the hook going to be? To me, if the title, if, if there's no hook, people, you know, that's why Kevin make jokes. Everybody laughs about my marquees because I, I try to make the title the hook. I love the marquee. So so I preach on a Sunday, Sunday afternoon. I'm really, uh, I'm really reading that text and I'm kind of getting into it. And now that I'm getting a little bit older and I've been in the game a little while, I can craft sermon in my head, uh, whereas before it was all about notes. Monday morning, I really have a sense of, of, of what God is saying about the text, and now I'm taking a lot of notes, and I'm studying, and, I, and you know, it's my day off from the church, so no one's bothering me. I'm at Georgia Tech. I teach class that morning, and then I go lock myself in my office uh, at Georgia Tech. So if I'm in the office at the church, I, someone's going to knock on the door. Someone's going to sit down. But if I close my door at Georgia Tech, no one is going to necessarily come and find me. So I'll sit here in my office. That's where I'm sitting right now. I'm in my office at Georgia Tech. So I'll sit in my office at Georgia Tech on a Monday and I'll take all these notes and I'll be digging into word studies and, and, and all this type of stuff, trying to act like I, I remember Hebrew and Greek and all this other foolishness, right? So Tuesday, I then outline the entire sermon beginning to end, except for how I'm going to close it. Wednesday, I have sermon preview at my church. So my seniors come up to the church at 12 o'clock and I, excuse me, 11 o'clock, and I go over the sermon with them. The reason is because I want to hear, I'm, I'm young, I, I was young, now I'm getting older, but I preach to a lot of 60 and 70 year olds. So I, I want it to be relevant to them, right? So I could talk about relationships sliding in the DM, but that's only going to mean something to my young adults. So what is the analogous term of sliding to the DM to a 70-year-old, right? That's why I meet with my seniors. So when I make the joke about sliding in the DM, I also didn't make the joke about, you know, sipping the moonshine out at the juke joint because that's what they understand, right? It's the same mm -hmm. idea, but I don't know anything about moonshine behind the juke joint, so I have to talk to them. And they literally tell me the places in Atlanta they used to go and what they <laughs> used to do, and I, I'll slide those. And did. after the sermon, and people are like, well, how do you know anything about pity pads? Well, I was talking to you, so that's what sermon preview is about. Mm -hmm. Thursday morning, I don't care what my Thursday looks like. If I have a really busy Thursday, I will just get up earlier and earlier and earlier. There's sometimes I get up at three o'clock in the morning, but I will not go to sleep on Thursday unless my sermon's written. Beginning to end, the entire I'm a manuscript preacher. Beginning to end, sermon is written. Friday, I'm mirror preaching it. Right. So I don't want to do this the entire sermon. Right. So I want to have some opportunity where I'm engaging. When I said do this on a podcast, I look down. So I don't want to be caught looking down the entire sermon. I want to engage. So I've got to uh, kind of mirror preach the sermon. And sometime between Friday and Saturday, the worst you can do is have a theologian in your house. So I'm married to a better preacher than I am. 
and I'm married to someone who has a PhD <laughs> in theology. So somewhere between Friday and Saturday, what I probably should never do is let her read the sermon. But she's going to mm-hmm. read, particularly from a womanist view, I am a male. And so I'm going to get those edits that help me be a little more sensitive and, and appropriate to, you know, a kind of wider audience. And then Sunday I preach it, rinse, wash, repeat, and then do the whole same process all over again. That's pre-COVID. Post-COVID, we record, we do simulated live broadcasts, which means, just like Kevin said, we record on a Sunday and then we broadcast. Challenges for us, I record two services on a Sunday because my people are used to worshiping, doing two services. So I record two services on a Sunday. For example, this Sunday, April the 18th, I'm recording May 2nd and May 9th, right? April 25th, I'm ordaining some uh, preachers in service. So I'm live streaming. So April 18th has already been recorded. I recorded April 18th two weeks ago, right? So I'm several weeks ahead in my services. The reason why is because I like to give my people Sundays off. They've never had Sundays off before. So obviously, think about it. If you record two services a Sunday in 52 weeks in a year, we're only actually physically coming to the church 26 Sundays out of the year. So I'm able to say, oh, Memorial Day is on a Monday. You can have Sunday off. Father's Day, you can be off. Mother's Day, you can be off. Easter, they were off for the very first time. Easter Sunday, they could be at home with their families because we had recorded Easter in advance. So I record in advance. But that means this Sunday, I got to have May 2nd and May 9th sermons That's right. prepared. Well, what's mm-hmm. happened in COVID is I'm not physically in the building as much. I have less meetings, so that's allowed me to do a lot more sermon preparation in advance. So actually, shh, don't tell anybody, my sermons <clears throat> through May are already written, right? So I've taken wow. that time during COVID to help myself get far ahead. The challenge is April 18th service was already done, sermon was already written. Then Dante Wright gets shot. Yep. Now, my entire worship experience is irrelevant to what is actually going on in the real world. So what I do to save my people, when I take my, my, I'm talking about my people, Kevin knows your staff, your sound team, your media team, all the, your music ministry, all your musicians, to save them, instead of me saying to them at the last minute, all, right, all of y'all got to come back to the church, we got to re-record a whole other thing. What I do is I sit down and I record a one-on-one personal message to my congregation. And then I have our video editor append that to the beginning of the worship service, right? So our pastors being relevant, I'm addressing what has occurred. And then we go into worship and everybody understands what they're about to watch has nothing to do with with Derek Wright being shot because this was probably recorded in in advance. So that has happened. And if if ever I felt it has not happened yet. No, it did happen. When Rashard Brooks was shot, I called everybody together. I changed the sermon. Mm -hmm. You know, I I said we have the entire worship has to be more relevant because this happened in Atlanta. And that Wendy's right off that people, you know, it it was a little more. I'm not going to say it was a little more in our front yard because all of these are in our front yard, but you know what I mean. It was it, it was Atlanta mm-hmm. as opposed to, yeah, it was local. local. So that, that was the one time that I did that. When we go back, I don't know what life is going to look like because I enjoy, no idea. I enjoy being ahead uh, with my sermons mm-hmm. because I write the sermon in advance and then I edit it coming, you know, in, you know, in time to preach it. So all my sermons through May are written, but I haven't recorded all the May services yet. So when I get to early May and I'm recording, let's say, May 30th, uh, I'm going to re-look at that sermon. I'm going to make some edits. I'm going to make some tweaks. And I, and I think edited sermons, when your eyes have gotten away, see, that's the problem. You and I, you know, when we preach mm-hmm. on a normal week, we're, we're rushing to get it done so we can preach it on Sunday morning. And then the Holy Spirit makes the edit Sunday morning at the mic. 
Absolutely. But you know, Kevin, if you watch Kevin preach, he'd be like, is he even looking at a manuscript? It's how does he do that? That that is literally extemporaneous preaching. He's talented, he's gifted. Damon's got an iPad sitting in front of him. <laughs> and I'm such an engineer. If you hear it come out of my mouth, I promise you it was on that iPad. Good morning, <laughs> brothers and sisters. <laughs> Turn with me in your Bibles too. It's on the iPad. You know what I'm saying? It's on the iPad. Everything is on the iPad. There's literally on the iPad, it'll say hoop now, right? So I know I know mm-hmm. when to go into it. Decrescendo, breathe. Right. You need a breath. You're probably tired. Like I'm giving myself little notes uh-huh. in the iPad. So I'm not as talented as Kevin. I can't do extemporaneous Mentally. preaching. Plus, if I extemporaneously preach, we might be in there three hours. I just, I don't know when to shut up. So I know when to shut up because it says in sermon right there on the page. <laughs> Uh, this is invaluable. And I think it's important to to really look at, okay, what's going to happen? Like you said, you have pre-COVID when it was just the traditional rhythm, the traditional flow, and then post-COVID. And so I think a, a thing that well, some pastors I've talked to are wrestling with is you've now acquired an additional audience yes. that is used to your pre-recorded mm-hmm. worship experience. And then you also will then have to go back to a live streamed worship experience that may be longer because you're pre-recorded. You may have had a tighter window. You may have said, okay, we're going to do an hour. We're going to do an hour and a half or an hour 15. And then now you're going to be streaming live where you may allow the spirit to move a little more. You don't have those same types of editing and, and time restraints. So you may not have an hour and a half, an hour and 45 minutes or whatever it was your traditional style. How do you see managing that aspect going forward, just in terms of, of what that would mean for your worship design? Yeah, we aren't going back. I mean, I, I don't I don't think you can go back from what you <laughs> from what you have already done. I, you know, we no, we aren't going back. I mean, we're going forward. We're going to we'll keep we'll keep a semblance of what we currently have. Obviously, when we go back to the church, when we come back to physical worship, even our members have gotten used to, you know, kind of the flow of things. I believe the spirit can move within an hour. I, I you know, we have mm. seen the spirit mm. of God do some life changing things in an hour. And I think the efficiency of worship is uh, has been life giving to us. And technology has made that possible. And I think even the hour, even in times so we stream our services at 10 a.m., before COVID, we had 8 and 11. So 10 a.m. is kind of that sweet spot, uh, has become that sweet spot for us. So I don't think we're going to lose that dynamic, but we're going to have to figure it out. And I'd say whatever church churches need to do to figure it out, how to keep that audience, because the worst thing we can do is to be given this gift and then let it go uh, you know, and, and sacrifice it on the altar of traditionalism. Uh, just where we've been, not where we're going. So, so would you lean towards a 10 o'clock single worship experience or will just your online be 10 o'clock? So, so how will you manage that piece? Or will you say we're going to be in person at whenever that, you know, whenever we can get back in person. So we'll be in person at 10 and we'll be live streaming at 10. Or will you be in person at 10 and then have a separate pre-recorded worship that you stream at 10? Yeah, I think all options are on the table. I mean, I think for us, we're going to probably stream all of our services. But I still think you can create, you know, again, when Damon talks about editing, you know, you can you can put a service together and the various elements and then premiere it whenever you want to premiere it. I mean, that's the beauty yes. of technology. Yes. So you can have a live streamed service that everybody watches at eight 
You can have a live service at 11, stream that, but you can also have a pre-recorded 10 o'clock service that you stream that is for, you can do so many different things. I mean, we're looking at, you know, how can we, how can we broadcast? We have a community in, you know, Nigeria right now in Abuja, Nigeria. Uh, we have members there who've joined in other countries. We had family of five who joined in France, yeah. you know, on Easter Sunday. So what does it look like to stream a service with those cultural identities present and stream it at their time? I mean, you know, our community in Abuja is six hours ahead of us. So, you know, they have to wake up, you know, much earlier to tune into our service. So we're looking at even options for recording a service specifically for that community. So, I mean, I just think the the possibilities are endless, endless. when it comes to, to this. And I would encourage any pastor, any seminary student thinking about starting an online campus, thinking about starting whatever that looks like, don't be boxed in by the traditional methods that we've used because God has allowed us to open up, you know, the church closed, but then God opened the church up at the same time. And, you know, he's allowed us to think outside of the box. So I would definitely say do so. I mean, Kevin, think about it. What if you love what the choir did at eight o'clock, but you like your sermon better at 10? So after both services are over, yeah. you say to your video editor, take the take the praise and worship from eight, take my sermon from 10, take the invitation I did at eight, but take the benediction from 10, put that together and put that on demand for, for Sunday service. I mean, that's we have and they can do we it. have that flexibility now. If we leave church at 1130, 12 o'clock, this new service is up that nobody has experienced because you've taken these elements and psh, you put it together. And all you need is a Mac <laughs> and, uh, and you're, you're, you're dead. But no, nobody's, Elliot, to your point, nobody's going back. William McDowell sang the doggone song. I won't go back. I won't go back. Can't go That's back. It. And if you go back to the first lyric, I think the first lyric is something like, I've been changed. COVID has healed me. It has delivered me. It has freed me from the way that we have done it. And in COVID, a lot of pastors sang that second lyric, which is, you know, I've found joy (laughs) and Mm -hmm. peace and grace and favor in this new way. No, we're not. We're not going back at all. All this past the peace. We used to walk around and waste 20 minutes in the service. And I always wanted to get rid of it. But it was a part of the tradition of Providence. And they've done it for 30 years. And I couldn't get rid of it. Now, anybody want to touch each other? Get off me. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you got. Right. So and people enjoy service being, you know, an hour long. Right. They, they enjoy. It. Yeah. Yeah. And think and think about the time that people really get to spend with their families now on Sunday. The time we get to spend with our families on Sundays, the freeing, the freedom of that, the efficiency. But also there's a giving piece because we talked about finances earlier. Mm-hmm. The giving piece, I think, is is essential because people who never would have thought about giving online now have options right. to do so. So it's so it's no longer putting check or, or cash, quote unquote, in the offering plate, but it's opened up the idea that even our senior members can expand their territory and give online. And and so when you go from when you go to having 80% of people now give online and now you can track expenses easier. Now the efficiency within your finance department, because now it's all populated and your church management system is up. So there's so many different benefits that we often don't even talk about to what has happened virtually for us. You know, I just like them is that we aren't going back. Make it uh, easy. Make it easy for people to give. If you're listening to this podcast, you're going into ministry. Make it easy for people to give um, multiple ways fintech people want to give with their cell phones whether they want to give with an app whether they want to give on their cell phone whether they want to give on a website just make it easy for them people want to give they just don't want to go through a whole lot of steps to do it 
uh, and nobody's walking in church with cash or check anymore. This idea of touching, contactless. The world is going contactless, so the church must go, you know, contactless. If I can go get gas and not touch uh, the pump except to pick up the thing and put it in my car, That's right. then at church you need to be able to give contactless. You know, how can we give communion contactless? People, you know, this idea of touch uh, is really going to go down because people are going to be scared, you know, first coming back with this whole, you know, COVID and germs and viruses and the whole nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Be prepared for the reaction when, when the first person coughs in your worship service. Oh, yes. Be, pre- be prepared. I just want to know how my Catholic brothers and sisters are going to do communion with intention. Are we still all doing the one cup theology? We just all, we all going to dip and drink out this same? That's going to be Is that what we're doing? Hmm. I wonder how they're going to get that done. Sometimes being Baptist with them little plastic cups with the little wafer. Uh-huh. Pick your wafer up on yeah. your way in, homie. Now, even we do that now. So thank you all for uh, for that gift. Yeah. For the gift of the communion yes, kit, right? Yes. Right. We got the kit. We got the communion kit. Just go yeah, pick that, pick that joke absolutely. up off the, the yeah. table right there in the vestibule. Come on, uh-huh. come on in and sit down. We'll let you know when to open it. <laughs> right. Awesome. So, if we could close from this conversation okay. with each of you, sort of, sort of giving me like a closing thought, just on what we've talked about today. Let me defer to my brother, Doctor Muriel. He's much more august than I am. Mm-hmm. So, closing thought. Be true to who you are because God is going to bless you and no other version, no other representation, no other iteration. God's going to bless you with the gifts that he's given to you and be comfortable in who you are. And again, build relationships, uh, but know that, you know, just like we began this podcast, know that it's a journey and the journey is going to be. It's going to have its ups. It's going to have its downs. It's going to have its ebbs and flows. Uh, you're going to meet some great people on the journey. You're going to meet some folks who ain't so great. Oh, yes. But stay true to who you are. And I believe that God's going to bless that. Absolutely. And I, I want to echo something Kevin just said. My mentor and predecessor, Reverend Dr. Gerald Durley, when I first got hired, he sat me down and he said, Damon, relationships is the most important word in the English lexicon. I'll never forget him saying that. And so that will be my closing thought. Develop relationships, get to know people, a network. You're in the relationship business as a pastor. That's kind of what makes our life hard. Because you deal, you make all these relationships and then these people die. And for other people, it's just the church has a lot of funerals. But for the pastor, we lose family. These are our family members. And in Providence, we do 12 to 15, I lose 12 to 15 family members a year. You know, that is a lot. But uh, yeah, develop relationships and mentorship. Let people's wisdom wash over you. And then take the wisdom and take it wherever you are going to go. I was on the step team. Kevin, if you can believe it, when I was Alpha at Georgia Tech, I was on the step team. And Dean of Pledges, who was also the step master, he used to say, listen, to be a good stepper, first you have to learn the step. And then you got to freak the step. And what he was saying was, first, you you got to learn the actual structure, the basic proper structure of the step. Then once you have the basics down, you then freak it using your own style, right? And that's that that's your gift. And I would say it's the same thing with developing relationships. When Kevin and I tell you to develop relationships, that's learning the basics and the foundation. You're going to take it, put your own, you're going to freak it your own way. You're going to put your own spin on it with your career and where you're going to go. But somebody has done the basics. And you can learn the basics from somebody else. And you stand on that and then you move forward with where God would have you to go based upon your gifting. And that comes from relationships. Thank you, Reverend Drs. Muriel and Williams for sharing your incredible insight. 
Special thanks to the Candler Foundry for hosting this important series. And our music for this episode was created by Candler alum Julian Reed. I'm your host, Reverend Elliot Robinson. Join us next time as we continue the celebration of Candler Black Excellence and its faculty who exemplify wisdom, humility, and strength.